Welcome to episode 23 of Is This Democracy, the podcast where we discuss the ongoing conflict over how much democracy and for whom there should be in America. My name is Thomas Zimmer. I'm a historian at Georgetown University. I'm Lily Mason. I'm a political scientist at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute. And today we want to tackle the problem of polarization or maybe the problems with the polarization narrative. Polarization is one of the most pervasive terms in the American political and broader public discourse. It's also probably the least controversial thing one can do in American politics is to decry polarization. If you do it, you will be rewarded with a steady stream of nodding heads from almost across the political spectrum. Yes, polarization, the root of all evil that plagues America. And it seems so obviously true sometimes, doesn't it? it with all the dysfunction in Congress and the way American society is seemingly disintegrating into two camps that regard each other with increasing hostility and aggression. And yet... We believe that we should probably be a little more critical towards the polarization narrative, towards polarization as the central diagnosis of our time. And that's what we want to think through today. That's a big task. And luckily for us, we have help. Um, Shannon McGregor is our guest today, the perfect guest to help us dissect the polarization research and broader narrative. She's an assistant professor at the Hussman School of Journalism and Media, a senior researcher at the Center for Information Technology and Public Life, both at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where she also holds an appointment with the Department of Political Science. Her research is focused on the role of social and digital media in our democracy, how it shapes and impacts politics and public opinion. And she's also interested more generally in the interplay between politicians, journalists, and the public, which is obviously a vital question in any democratic system, and how, how all three of those groups use social media politically. There are many good reasons to have Shannon on, but specifically, she very recently published a new article together with her co-author, Daniel Kreis, titled A Review and Provocation on Polarization and Platforms. It is freely available online. We'll put it in the show notes. You should all read it. It's fairly short. Um, you'll, you'll get through it. No problem. I think it's fair to say that it is a bit of a broadside, intentionally so, against the general thrust of the polarization research in political science and more generally against the idea that polarization is the number one threat to democracy that we need to focus on. In the piece, um, Shannon and Daniel Kreis argued that, and I'll quote, polarization can only be seen as a central threat to democracy if inequality is ignored. Um, they also argue that, we, again, quote, we cannot sacrifice equality and justice on the altar of social cohesion. Our foundational claim is that polarization might not be bad for democracy. It might, in fact, be a necessary outgrowth of efforts to achieve democracy, end of quote. Ooh, that's the good stuff. So, um, great opportunity for us to finally take a deep dive into all things polarization. Um, we're very happy to have you with us for that, Shannon. Um, welcome to Is This Democracy. Thank you for having me. So, um, I thought, Shannon, we should maybe start by talking a little bit about what role polarization has played in your own research, in your work, in your thinking about the topics that you work on and how you ultimately arrived at this point where you thought, now we really need to be far more critical about this, um, this idea. And I'm going to sit down and, and, and go on the attack against the polarization narrative. So how did, how did you get to that point? Yeah. So a lot of my work, as you mentioned earlier, has been around sort of the role of social media and platforms in politics. And so, you know, especially uh, in the run up to the 2016 presidential election and the time since, there's been so much work that looks at 
the role of social media platforms in furthering polarization and making it so that we can't talk as much to one another, right? And, and this sort of idea that everyone is getting more sort of extreme into their partisan camps. And, you know, there are researchers outside of these technology platforms doing this kind of research. And that's also what a lot of the researchers inside technology and social media companies were concerned about as well. Um, course, I'm reading all that research because this is very germane, right, to the work that I'm doing. Um, and I think I just started to think that I'm not sure if this is really the, the thing that is the issue, right? Um, because polarization sort of makes it feel like there's two equidistant poles. Like that's sort of what that word conjures. Um, but especially if we also take into consideration the other work that was burgeoning around this time around disinformation, again, we do not see that there is an equal sort of supply, right? If, if we look on both sides of the political aisle and that disinformation is primarily a problem among the right. Um, and so then how can polarization, if it's sort of playing out on these platforms, is that really a problem of quote unquote, both sides? Um, and you know, I think also in reading a lot of that literature, um, the way that it was seen as this like normative goal that like everything would just get better if we weren't as polarized um, and that it was a problem for everyone um, just started to strike uh, us as not a clear-eyed view of what the problem really was. And, and so you decided it was time to step on the toes of a few people, <laughs> which I think... Just you, a little. <laughs> <laughs> you probably, you've probably done with that piece. So, Lily, um, you are cited a lot in, in that article, and that's because you have very much been a, a key participant, a key voice in the political science discussion over polarization. Your 2018 book, Uncivil Agreement, How Politics Became Our Identity, it's a major contribution in the field, it's fair to say that it was well received. It got a lot of public attention. I mean, rightfully so. And at that point, I would have said, well, Lily Mason is one of the country's leading polarization scholars. And yet, correct me if I'm wrong, you seem to have moved off the polarization beat a little bit. Or I believe, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you are generally also relatively critical of the idea now. So how has your thinking around this evolved and, and why? Yeah, well, and I'm really glad that we that we brought Shannon on today because this is one of these things that you know we have talked about at conferences when we run into each other. This is this topic that we've kind of it's kind of been like simmering below the surface for a long time. There's a, a, a number of us that have been thinking about it from a bunch of different perspectives. Um, for me, it's like polarization is the term that is polite and neutral. And it basically just means like people are mad at each other and politics is nasty. And like, that's, that's like, that's fine. Um, and that's, you know, honestly, what started my research was like, things feel really nasty right now. And so, you know, these scholars were talking about, like other scholars were talking about polarization, um, whether or not Americans were polarized. There was actually a debate about this not that long ago. Um, but then, uh, you start looking into the roots of it, and this is in the in Shannon's article also, right? As you start looking into the roots of it, you start seeing like this is not just about political disagreement. This is about identity. This is about real people. This is about who counts as an American. Clearly, there's a reaction going on to increasing equality and social progress, and the parties are taking sides on that really divisive question. And so, is it really? 
polarization that's the problem, that the parties are far apart. I think I've said in this podcast before that like, if you have two parties and one of them is becoming increasingly authoritarian, you don't want the other one to become more authoritarian just to reduce polarization, right? Like that's not the goal. You want them to stay far, at least the non-authoritarian one to stay far, far away. Um, and we have these questions about social equality. And so the term I think is popular because it's really easy to use. It doesn't blame anybody. It doesn't bring up any kind of like difficult conversations about racism or sexism or whatever kind of, uh, you know, argument we're actually having. And the problem is that it papers over that argument and it doesn't allow us to have the actual conversation that's actually making everybody really angry, which is we're dealing with a changing society. And, you know, as the theme of this podcast goes, right, like we we want to move toward a pluralistic multi-ethnic democracy we have to actually talk about that process. We can't just say reducing polarization because also times of low polarization have tended to be times when we don't talk about racism. We just let people be racist, right? Like we don't try to fix problems. We just paper them over and we allow both parties to hold a lot of pretty disgusting kind of uh, uh, ideas. And we pretend, okay, you know, some people in each party are bad and, and let's just not really talk about it. So the study, I think, started in a good place, but I just am increasingly un uncomfortable with the term polarization. So I think um, what you've both said there already mostly entailed all of the things that we're going to talk about today, but we'll we'll un unpack them a little bit, right? Um, and, and again, get back to all of the themes and, and, and all of the important points that, that you've raised there. So I think it's fair to say we're all on the same page here when it comes to being fairly critical towards polarization as a sort of master narrative for, for our time. But before we focus fully on criticizing it and and focus on the blind spots and pitfalls and, and all that, I think it's useful to outline the polarization argument, what it actually says and what the key claims are. So I'll try to give a, a, a an outline in, in very, very broad strokes. So the term polarization as a description of what's going on in America, rose to prominence in the late 1960s. That's not very surprising. There was a widespread perception at the time after the mass protests and the political violence of the 60s in general, but 1968 specifically, that the country was falling apart. So commentators started talking about the polarization of America. Nixon actually picked it up, but he liked the idea of polarizing the electorate, um, which the Nixon camp thought was going to be to their benefit because they thought, that's great. We're going to polarize the electorate, but we're going to get the bigger share of the polarized electorate, right? And then political scientists and social scientists picked it up around 1980 or so, late 70s, early 80s. Initially, they focused on political or partisan polarization, defining it, again, in simple terms, as a widening gap between the two major parties, resulting from Democrats becoming more liberal and Republicans becoming more conservative. And the, since then, the definition has considerably widened. Um, polarization is now referring to America, Americans, um, American society, again, supposedly, increasingly falling apart into two opposing camps that hold increasingly, quote-unquote, extreme views and positions that regard each other with increasing suspicion and whose lives, views, and identities are increasingly shaped by being part of such a polarized camp. Shannon, is that, broadly speaking, sort of a plausible overview of, of, of how that has gone, sort of the polarization research and, and what, broadly speaking, is usually referred to as polarization? Yeah. And I think I would add a little bit to it, you know, more to the sort of 
more current, um, you know, research that I think has animated and led to this discussion, which is there's, you know, building off just the partisan polarization has been, you know, this literature on polarization has been concerned with identity based in social differences and how people are polarized along those lines. And, you know, Lily's work has been super important for us in thinking through this because those identities map onto social groups, which map onto structures of power. And like, that's where we think the polarization research that exists loses the thread. (laughs) I know we're coming to the criticism, but I just wanted to say like, how important I think that is to thinking through this. Um, And so, you know, is concerned about things like not only just partisan polarization, but effective polarization, right? Is there this idea that we just really don't, not even can't see someone else's side, but just feel anger, right? And can't feel sort of any understanding or empathy towards other people. And I think particularly when we think about the idea of polarization as it maps on to, you know, using social media or other sort of media platforms, I think that's been where a lot of the focus has been. So, Lily, for quite some time, the academic debate was defined by a conflict between those who said what was happening was polarization and those who said, nah, it was actually just partisan sorting. Um, It's maybe helpful to talk a little bit about what that means and, and where we are on that sort of sorting versus versus a polarization question and, and whether or not that's even still relevant to to think about. Yeah. So, I mean, I think what I would also just to, to your definition, what I would add to put this in context for listeners is using the word gap, right? There's this increasing gap between the parties. Yeah. The main question that I bring to it or that I brought to it was gap in what? Yeah. Right? Like... <laughs> And and you can't really get people to answer that question. And the assumption has always been that the gap is between what people want government to do, right? The yeah. the, the extremity and distance between their their policy preferences in the two parties. And so for like for like twenty years, these two political scientists, Mo Fiorina and Alan Abramowitz, had this like back and forth debate over whether or not America was polarized. Fiorina said. No, actually, if you look, you know, ask people questions about what they want government to do. And like most Americans are either moderate or they have like very conflicting issue positions. They're on the left and the right, depending on the issue. And that means we're not polarized. And Abramowitz said, yeah, but if you look at only the people who are the most engaged in politics, they are, right? Their issue positions are far apart. And therefore, the people who are the most important to the outcomes of politics are are polarized and therefore America is polarized. And so Abramowitz was saying, these people, this subset of people have very extreme policy preferences. And Fiorina was saying, yeah, but on average, people don't have extreme policy preferences. And this went back and forth forever. And and really, it was Fiorina saying, if there's any change over time, it's that people have more consistent policy preferences, which was the idea of sorting. It's that Democrats are more consistently liberal and Republicans are more consistently conservative on their policy preferences, but they're not more extreme. They're just better sorted into their parties based on their policy preferences. So that went back and forth a million times. And um, there were so many articles and book chapters. And I came to my dissertation looking at that research and saying, like, I think they're fighting over the wrong thing. Like, they're, they're, they're talking about policy preferences. But like, we know a lot about why people hate each other. And it's usually not about like taxes, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
And like, you know, intergroup conflict research is is definitely not focused on, you know, whether or not you can, you know, you, you're going to pay for the school in your school district based on your, your mortgage rate or whatever, right? So like, all of this, the you know, we were this the the previous conversation was pretending that we were having a very reason, reasonable, rational conversation about what the role of government should be and what we as voters want government to do, and that's not what it really turned out to be. Chris Aiken and Larry Bartels wrote this book called Democracy for Realists, and they call it the folk theory of democracy, which is that we are all thinking rational thoughts and and carefully weighing our decisions when we go to the voting booth and choosing the candidate that either has the best economic record or that promises the most economic benefit to our families or our communities. And all of the research points to that not being true, that we're very much team creatures. And so that's, but so the, the background is it was supposed to be that we disagreed on issues. And I mean, that is, I think, the 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 very important shift in sort of the general research. I'm not a political scientist, but I read that literature. Um, <laughs> it, it seems to me that the, the focus has moved from sort of ideological, political policies of polarization more to social polarization and then what is called effective polarization or maybe cultural polarization. And, and those are maybe terms that we can unpack a little bit, Shannon. What is, in broad terms, what is social polarization what is effective polarization what is i mean if if you think it's relevant cultural polarization as opposed to again i think lily you you made it very clear like this this idea that it's about policy positions or or policy issues so in that sense it's a political ideological polarization that's that's probably not super plausible So, so what what about those other terms um social effective cultural polarization what's what's that all about Yeah. So social polarization is this idea that the distinctions between these social groups that we all sort of unwittingly or sometimes wittingly, you know, sort of sort ourselves into um, have become increasingly sort of uh, sorted and divided, right? And, And not able to sort of see past those lines of social groups. And then I think that, you know, the concern around the, the, the sort of effective polarization literature is that then because of those, uh, because of that social polarization, now that means we have increasing feelings of liking uh, and, and sort of empathy and understanding towards our own groups. But that leads to increasing sort of like dislike and hatred or feeling of mistrust towards those social groups and people in them that you feel very distanced to in this sort of affective polarization model. Um, but all of those things, I think, you know, you also asked about the idea of like sort of cultural polarization social groups, the way we feel about other people, all of those sort of map on to these differences in our worldviews, right? And and our um, sort of underlying psychological dispositions and how we sort of see the world and think about things. Um, If those things sound really related, I think they are, right? Like, I think one of the issues is that it's really hard to say, oh, well, it's this type of polarization, right? Right? Like social polarization, effective polarization, cultural polarization are all, of course, very intertwined with one another. So so Lily, that is what I took away from when I read your book um, back in when it came out, the creation of, I think, what you call in the book mega identities, which I, I thought was very helpful to, again, transcend this oh, it has to be this kind of polarization. No, what if it's this kind of polarization? Because what what you are arguing, again, if I remember correctly, is the problem is that all these different identities align 
ideological, religious, racial, gender, whatever. They all align along partisan lines that creates these sort of mega identities. So the the distance between parties or partisan camps, it's not necessarily rooted in ideological disagreement, but um, it is still true that we we end up in a place where we have a sort of a widening gap between partisan identities because now all these different identities that sort of stack up we are all sort of you know we all have these different identities but they all now point in the same direction aligning with certain partisan identities does that is that a fair way to think about what's what's going on there yeah so i call that social sorting so and so oh, okay. much like this the earlier term sorting where it was like democrats are more consistently liberal and republicans are more consistently conservative um i refer to this as social sorting so it's like um republicans are more consistently white and evangelical and rural and and democrats are actually less consistently <laughs> many identities right there are many different identities but like they're not the the rural white evangelical um, identities. And so the that that process of sorting of our sort of identities moving into these opposing groups, what that did was take whatever human instinct we have towards intergroup conflict, to, towards hating people who are not us and loving people who are us, uh, it took that and it multiplied it by all of those other identities. So now we don't just hate people in the other party because we disagree on the marginal tax rate, we hate them because they are different from us in so many ways. And that's social, that's affective, that's cultural, that's all right. That we're, they are different from us in all these ways. And we feel that really viscerally. It's not just that we disagree, that we feel really like those people are not like me and we shouldn't even be necessarily, you know, in the same country, right? This is, they shouldn't count as Americans as much as my people count as Americans. Ultimately, what you do then is if you have, let's say, for example, racial identities connected to your partisan identity, you're going into the voting booth and you're actually voting not just on which party you think is best, but which racial group you think is best, which is a terrible idea. We should not be voting who gets, you know, who's the best racial group in our country. That's that is a recipe for disaster, if not genocide. So, like that's a that's a very bad way to do politics, but it does explain how we are currently doing politics. I would just add one thing onto that, even, which is I sort of think in some ways we've come full circle. Because now, you know, especially, you know, we'll get to the critiques of polarization uh, again in a minute, but I think, again, especially on the right, there's this sort of manufacturing of these culture war issues, which now we're back to issues, right? Like actual, like anti-trans bills, right? That are designed to evoke these mega identities, right? So now it's the co-optation of this social sorting along the lines of identity, culture, worldview, and then translating those because, you know, if you're in the government, you're supposed to do something into bills, right? And actual legislation that then feed back into these identities, both from an in-group and out-group perspective. Yeah. And it raises the stakes in, in, in what is supposed to be a, you know, you're supposed to look at the other side as just a political opponent and, you know, there's going to be elections. But if all this happens, right, then the stakes in every election are very, very high. Now, if, if we stop the recording here, right, um, I think the audience would think, wait a minute, you, you, you all started by saying, oh, you're so critical about the polarization uh, uh, argument and the polarization narrative and, and, and that sort of thing. But, I mean, what we've done so far is basically say, no, I mean, this stuff is real, right? I just want to make clear that what we're doing here is not saying... There is no such thing as polarization in America. Yeah, Forget the yeah. term. That's not a thing. That's not what we're saying, right? And we're also not saying 
that some forms of polarization are not a problem, right? So for instance, this is so obvious that we haven't even said it yet, but I mean, there is polarization in Congress in the sense that, you know, polarization is more pronounced now in Congress than it was 50 years ago, right? Um, is certainly a very low level, historically speaking, of bipartisanship and a very high level of negative partisanship, right? Yeah, even even um, Fiorina said that, right? Fiorina yeah. was like, Congress is yeah. polarized, but yes. the people are not. Yes. And it's also, I mean, just to be clear, that is a problem for the political system in the sense that the system wasn't even made for political parties to begin with, because when it was created, no one thought that was a thing, political and professional political parties. And polarized political parties, in the sense that we just talked about, only exacerbate the problem. So we're not saying, this is not a problem, forget it, right? That's not the argument. Okay, now that that's out of the way, right? Let's talk a little bit about what the problems are and why, again, at least once the polarization concept is adopted as sort of an overarching diagnosis, right? As a sort of a, a governing paradigm, I think we all have we all feel that it it obscures rather than it illuminates the actual problems and it it transports a misleading idea of what's actually up in America and what the actual threat to democracy is and that that I think we should unpack and maybe we can distinguish different levels here there's an empirical critique of the polarization narrative um so the question is does it even hold up to empirical scrutiny there's a normative critique um more targeting the level of sort of the underlying normative assumptions on, on which much of that polarization research is, is built. And then there's also historical critique. Let's start with the empirical level. So if we think of it this way, how can we best assess and describe the key issues and problems that plague American politics, right? It is true that in an internationally comparative perspective, the gap between left and right, these terms are very broad, but whatever, gap between left and right is very wide in America and has been widening on many issues. So why can't we just stop there and say, see, polarization. Shannon, maybe maybe you can go first. You can go wherever you want. You can go with what you, what you were arguing in the article or where, wherever you see sort of on the, on the empirical level the big problems. Um, I mean, I think, so empirically, especially I think in the work that has tried to... Um, understand the role of social media platforms in exacerbating polarization. There's a lot of, uh, I would say it's unclear yeah. in a lot of that literature, whether people, you know, very empirically sussed out, whether people are uh, polarized because they are on social media platforms or people who are on social media platforms are people who are polarized, right? So there's a lot of sort of like fuzziness around the directionality of that, um, which again, given that we just spent a couple minutes talking about how people are polarized along lines socially, effectively, culturally, politically, seems pretty clear that we're probably not going to be able to understand a causal link between polarization and spending time on a social media platform if we understand that there's all these other layers, right, that go into the lines along which um, Americans uh, and, and people in many other countries as well um, are polarized. I think one of the other... Uh, I'm not sure if this straddles the empirical and normative critique. What is it you want to bring up? So maybe we can just figure out where, be where, where best to place it, <laughs> yeah. where best to put it in the... Just sort of like what the term itself means and whether that actu accurately describes the phenomenon even. Yeah, no, that's... But, like to me, that's both empirical and normative, but yeah, like... No, let's talk about that here. Okay. 
So I think then one of the issues is polarization, as we've talked about it here, and we've been defining it and thinking about it, suggests that folks are separated into these mega identities in this case, and there's two poles. And even when you look at the empirics, this is just not what we see, right? Like people on the left, Democrats are not as cohesive and not as polarized as their counterparts on the right. So there's, I think, a lot of empirical clumsiness around using that term to describe even what you are measuring. Yeah. Right? Even if you seek to measure polarization, if what you find is actually not polarization, then to continue to call it that and instead call it asymmetrical polarization, to me, this seems like a, 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 an empirical issue because then it's not, that's not what it is. Polarization suggests that it is symmetrical. And to call it asymmetric is to suggest that it's not polarization. It's also just a way to avoid saying right-wing extremism, mm -hmm. right? It's like, if you say asymmetric, polar, asymmetric polarization, what you're trying to avoid saying is the right is extreme and and the left is not as extreme on average across the population. And like, that's for, at least for political scientists and for, and, and for journalists, honestly, that's a really tough thing. We are trained our entire careers never to say, never to say that. I mean, that's the yeah. whole, that's the whole deal, right? Like, Yes, the gap between left and right is, in an international comparative perspective, wide. But that is not to say left and right are at sort of extreme poles of the whatever ideological political spectrum. Um, where that's even the case, that the, ga the gap is has been widening and is very wide, say on guns or pandemic response even, right? Or um, the question of whether or not political violence is acceptable if you don't win elections. It's, it's often entirely a function, almost entirely a function of conservatives moving, even, I mean, if conservatives even the right term here, but I'll use it, conservatives moving sharply to the right and the right being more extreme than in other countries, right? And so that's just not something that the, the polarization term and concept adequately captures and certainly not suggests, right? It certainly doesn't in the sort of broader imagination of in the, in, in the public discourse, when someone says polarization, that's, that's absolutely not what the term suggests, right? Um, and, and it insinuates calling it polarization. It has a sort of a both sides kind of quality to it, right? And, and that narrative completely obscures the fact that on the central issue that is at the core of the political conflict, which is democracy, right? And, and whether or not this country should, should even be certainly a multiracial pluralistic democracy, on that central issue, I mean, there's just now no equivalent to what's been happening on the right and, and in the Republican Party. I mean, one party wants to overthrow democracy because they consider it a threat to traditional hierarchies. And, and their vision of what real America is, and Democrats don't. Again, yes, in, in effect, that means the gap has widened considerably, but it doesn't mean that both sides are on, on extreme ends of the spectrum. And again, we don't want we don't want Democrats to start rejecting elections in order to reduce the quote-unquote polarization yes. between the parties. Yeah, and I just want to, you know, I want to make it clear to folks who are listening why this is such an appealing narrative and just talk a little bit more about what Lily mentioned earlier, both for researchers, but I think also for journalists and, and even for the public themselves, right? It's nicer to say that this is everyone's problem than to say 
here, here's who's the, who is the problem, right? Here's fascists, here's authoritarians, right? Here are people who are acting liberally. Um, that's a really hard thing to do if you're a journalist and you've been trained to be quote unquote objective. We're in a podcast, so you can't see me, but I'm using air quotes. Um, it's really hard to do if you are a social scientist, especially if you are a quantitatively trained social scientist, which also is very like this idea of objectivity is, I think, very built into this. And so it's this really appealing narrative. Um, and, and on top of all the concerns that we're talking about here, the idea of polarization has been weaponized by, in particular, those on the right, right, to say to criticize anything that anyone who is, I, I wouldn't even say on the left, anyone who's just trying to hold on to democracy, much less advance it, well, that's polarizing, right? Yeah. And that's an appeal that is not as partisan as a lot of the other appeals. So, I mean, it's trust dangerous. me, yeah, no, we, will, we will come back to that question of why do people cling to this narrative, even if it's at best, at best, faulty and at you know maybe 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 it's just bad right um so, so i want to come back to that later i i, I want to press you on something shannon you said about the term asymmetric polarization because that seems to be um that is a very popular term now because i think what we have generally described um is most reasonable people right people who deserve to be taken seriously at all would agree and acknowledge that Yes, it's not happening on either side in the same way, but they want to still, a lot of those reasonable, supposedly reasonable people still want to cling to the polarization concept. So they have started saying asymmetric polarization. So in a way, this is kind of a, you know, devil's advocate argument. I'm not buying it, but I I, I want you to sort of tell me why, why we shouldn't be buying it. So why doesn't the term solve the problem? So what we're saying is, okay, gap is widening and the right is moving further and faster to the right than the left is moving to the left. Okay. Isn't that covered by the term asymmetric? Why is it still, and I'm with you on that totally, but why is it still probably not, um, all is well, let's just say asymmetric polarization. I think at the root of a lot of it is still the word polarization, which sort of has these sort of two ends. And it asymmetric is not the same as one-sided, right? right? To say there we have one-sided polarization would yeah. be, I guess, more of a fair way of characterizing it, but even more rhetorically clumsy. So I'm not advocating for that. But Asymmetric suggests that there is polarization on both sides, yeah. but it's just like more on the right. right. That's just simply not what the empirical evidence bears out. Um, that that the right is getting more and more extreme, and the left is not necessarily getting more and more extremely progressive um, on social issues, on policy issues at all, and so. The word just does not fit, no matter what clumsy modifier you put in front of it, just does not describe what, you know, dozens and dozens of empirical studies have borne out. Not just not just empirical studies of the U.S. also, right? Like, like in the international context, Pippa Norris is a political scientist at Harvard who's been, who looks at comparative politics. And she plotted basically all of the parties across democracies on a, on a grid 
that goes from basically uh, measuring the extent to which um, the party uh, oppresses ethnic minority rights and the extent to which the party um, undermines uh, liberal democratic principles, um, including norms. And basically, all of the parties that that exist in democracies, the the U.S. the the U.S. Democratic Party is basically right in the center, and the Republican Party is far, far, far out to the right with the most extremist uh, right wing parties of Europe, and and that's just using these two measures that have you know that are being measured across the world by people who are not trying to find that outcome. Right? This is this is just empirical evidence, um, and so it's even even from an international perspective. The the Republican Party is pretty far out there. It's not a normal. It's not a normal, you know, centrist political party. It is. It is a very far right wing party, and so. And I I love Shannon calling it one sided polarization because that's literally just saying extremism, right? Like we're just saying like right wing right? Right extremism. Yeah. But but by but by giving it, you know, by we're clearly grasping for euphemisms to avoid saying that. Because it's really hard professionally to say that, and and it's and and when even you know uh, there are there are a lot of ex Republicans now who will say that about their own former party, um, it's not something that's like hidden or or that complicated. It's just and it's and it's very clearly there when you measure th- when you measure it using very common measures. I, I want to say that at, at this point, um, s- some of our colleagues, academics who study this stuff might say, hey, look, I I have very clearly defined asymmetrical polarization in these terms and these terms fit. And I'm like, that's not look, we can all we can all define terms however we want. That's not the solution is not to just here's my definition of the term. Yes, of course, we all know that you can come up with definitions of terms that fit the you know the picture. But we also we need to think a little bit about these are big political public debates and their shapings of the broader public, you know, understanding of what's going on. And there's just no way around the fact that the term polarization implies both sides moving towards the extremes, at least to a somewhat significant degree, right? Um, And if that's not the case, then don't use the term. Yeah. And I want to say one other thing, which is so much of the literature on polarization, whether it's empirical or theoretical, does little to define what the center of the pole should be. Right. Just that if we could come closer to it, everything would be better, right? And and I think that that's really problematic, right? Because then when you come to that, you get these solutions like, well, if we could just have people across the political aisle speak to one another, um, then we'll be fine because then people maybe would move to the center. I find that idea, frankly, like morally bankrupt. Um, I'm not going to ask someone, you know, it's your job, dear uh, trans person, to speak to someone who would deny your existence and deny your right to live in this country. But if you just talk to them, then maybe we can come closer to the pole, right? Because that, you know, without defining the center of what groups should move towards, then you just suggest that they should move towards one another. And that has no normative democratic basis. You know what's a really good um, example of this before? I mean, the example that you brought up is 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 the most important one. 
the one-offs of basic fundamental rights. But another good example that I think really captures the the the, the sort of the pitfalls with with the polarization narrative is is climate change attitudes towards climate change because here we are indeed looking at rapidly widening a partisan divide right and that's not for change it's not purely caused by conservatives moving right democrats self-proclaimed democrats have also moved that's not left but they have moved right since the 90s right so attitudes have indeed been polarizing with Republicans and Democrats moving away from each other, largely vacating a position in the middle on climate change, right? But as a political narrative, polarization is still completely misleading because it implies, again, it implies two things. Both sides are moving to the extremes and that this move to the extremes and the widening gap between the two positions that results from it is the actual problems. But Democrats aren't moving to an extreme position, right? I mean, not by international comparison. They're getting in line with what is the position shared by nearly all serious experts in the world. And meanwhile, a sizable percentage of Republicans is drifting further into fantasy land. So it's not the widening gap per se that is the problem. If Democrats hadn't moved on this issue since the 90s at all, the gap would be smaller between Democrats and Republicans on climate change attitudes, but we absolutely would not be better off. Instead, we would just end up with fewer people acknowledging the reality and urgency of climate change. That can't be better. But within the logic of the polarization narrative, that would be preferable because it's it's less polarized. Um, so that seems, I mean, that would I think that would be cause for maybe reconsideration. This this idea of like wh- what is at the center, right? right? It's such it's such a good point, and and if the center is like you get some human rights, you know, like like it, you don't need to be fully eradicated as a trans person, you just maybe a little bit eradicated. Like that's not you know, and, and this is something that I that I've that I've I've sort of m- mentioned before, which is like the problem. Part of the problem is that because we're so socially divided. We are having conversations about compromising on the very humanity of people. Like you can compromise on what level of taxation we should have. You can compromise on things like, you know, how much aid we should give to foreign nations. Like, we, you know, there are there are gradations in those things. And you can negotiate and you can find a perfect number right in the middle. So like you guys want to give Ukraine this much. We want to give Ukraine this much. So we'll go to the middle. Um, although maybe that's not that great example because it's weird stuff going on on the right with Ukraine. But <laughs> but the but w- if you're talking about numbers, you can find a compromise, right? But the problem is when we're talking about whether an entire group of human beings in the country who are American citizens should be eradicated, there is no compromise position there. We can't compromise on whether Black Americans should be treated equally as white Americans. We sh- we can't compromise on who whose vote counts in America. And so the shift from uh, thinking about this things as just you know economic policy to our politics being a central you know to identity means that we're shifting away from a place where there even is a middle that is normatively acceptable. We can't have half human rights. And even further, the idea that the political middle or the compromise is ideal, right, is fundamentally also a problem, right? I mean, I think a lot of these sort of fears around polarization are a reaction to the way that social movements and political actors in this country have been trying to move us more fully into having a true multi-ethnic, multi-racial democracy, right? And so trans people and their allies struggling and, and, you know, for 
basic human rights, of course, is polarizing. If people don't, if, if there's one, you know, group of people that don't believe they should exist. But in that case, how can an honest person look at that problem and say the problem is that it's polarizing rather than that the problem is one major party is trying to deny a group of people human rights? So, so we, we've already moved into that. That's not even just an empirical problem. It's a more sort of what are the normative foundations on which this idea of polarization as the key problem is, is built. But before we fully get there, for the record, I just want to say on the empirical level, one problem with the polarization narrative having become so pervasive is also that it completely overshadows and obscures and drowns out important areas where we're simply not looking at a polarized America or a polarized society, right? I mean, there's still quite a few important issues where you find relatively broad consensus across large parts, at least, of the of the political spectrum, right? I mean, try to build, I don't know, affordable housing in Berkeley, and it's not just the right or the left saying, no, we don't want this. Um, you know, there's no red-blue binary, apparently, when it comes to this sort of stuff. Or even like this, the so-called wedge issues. I mean, we've been talking about abortion so much over the, over the past few months. A two-thirds majority very stable two-thirds majority of the country has for decades now thought that abortion should be legal in all or most cases, right? And it's just relatively few people support either the full, no exceptions legalization of abortion. That's a relatively small number. And then even, even fewer support a complete ban under any circumstances. So public opinion actually seems to have been clustered pretty consistently I don't want to call that middle, but there, there's no polarization there. It's just relatively stable. And, and you know, um, to describe that as polarization, same with LGBTQ rights, by the way. I mean, the, the, since the 70s, the percentage of people regarding homosexuality, for instance, as a, quote, acceptable lifestyle, that has steadily inc increased to the point where, like, the idea that LGBTQ people deserve civil rights protections at the workplace, for instance, that has just reached near consensus status long ago. Right, so that's not polarized. So, but but in this in this narrative, it, it it pretends that everything, no matter where you look, you have red and blue. It's this binary. That's just not an adequate description of of what's going on in in American society. I don't think. And that's a very strategic choice that that is not represented in the way that politicians or other political actors talk about it, because if there weren't ways to, to sort of create these polarizing issues and create this sort of mask over issues where there is actually public consensus, then how could the GOP win enough elections to gerrymander their districts to stay in power? Right? Because those issues and talking about them in these extreme ways as a way to fire up the extreme portion of their base is the way to hang on to power when otherwise they would not be able to if we were simply talking about disagreeing or agreeing about issues. To Lily's work, making it about our identity is the very thing that allows these things to remain so relevant politically and charged politically, even though we see pretty wide consensus in broad public opinion about it. So, so Shannon, where I thought your latest um, article was sort of strongest and the most the most important contribution it, it is making is on this level of questioning the 
you know, the underlying sort of normative assumptions that polarization is bad, right, for democracy, and and where you actually say, no, hey, wait a minute, what if it's not, right? What if what if that's actually not true? Um, I thought again that that is so, and I think to some of our listeners too, that will be a sort of counterintuitive claim. Probably, what polarization is good actually. So let's let's unpack. I mean, I know we've we've touched on it already, but I, I really want to like unpack this. Why would you say something crazy like this? <laughs> polarization is actually good. Um. Can I like read a couple sentences oh, please that do. I think no, absolutely. really yeah. Yeah, um, no, absolutely nails do. it? Um, so, and we can unpack more this sort of like normative critique of it. And I think there's, you know, plenty of examples both in the paper and that I'm sure we could all think of. Um, but I'll read these couple sentences from the paper that I think, I hope summarize sort of what you're looking at. In the end, in preeminent veins of polarization scholarship, it is if researchers looked across the landscape of American history, saw a racial group with 200 plus years of social, cultural, political, legal, and economic dominance premised on both violence and law, assessed challenges to this by Black people and other people of color, and walked away with a diagnosis that the problem is both sides. Even more in scholarship on polarization and platforms, researchers often entirely overlook the substantial literature that shows that social media are also tools for pursuing justice and accountability. Another phrase for sectarianism is social justice movement. Like those pursuing justice are often institutionalized within the Democratic Party. And platforms are central to these movements' efforts at mobilizing, witnessing, and accountability, often through moral and emotional claims that, yes, clearly identify those who would defend the positions of whites and other dominant groups at the top of the political order as deserving of moral condemnation and distrust. And so we think that American history more than validates this view. So this is sort of the gets, I think, at the thrust of the normative argument, which is movements for greater equality, movements towards democracy, reconstruction, the civil rights movement, you know, just to take one, you know, sort of identity of race, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is part of the larger struggle for racial justice that we've seen more recently. I'm not going to argue that those haven't been polarizing. Yeah. But how can we say that's the problem? Right. Yeah. I think about it this way, which is that if we were to imagine the United States having a real reckoning with our legacy of racial violence and prejudice and really talking about what it would take to undo hundreds of years of oppression, what do we think American politics would look like if we really did that, right? If we really went through that process, what can we imagine would happen? I imagine that white supremacists would pop out of all of the little holes and, and nooks and crannies of our politics. I imagine that we would start having very loud fights. You know, what if we try to dismantle the patriarchy? Like, are men just going to sit around and be like, nah, fine, you know, like, we're not going to talk about it. Like, like, there's no way that we have a movement for greater equality without huge amounts of backlash. And, and, and honestly, in my most optimistic moments, I think that's what we're doing right? We're in it. We're in that mm -hmm. right now. And by pointing to the conflict that's been caused by that, instead of the progress that's being made or the backlash to that progress, we're not looking in the right place. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing, right? The, the, the polarization narrative 
fundamentally privileges unity and stability and social cohesion or whatever over social justice and equal participation. It just doesn't, it doesn't want to grapple with the fact that the former unity and stability stifles the latter, right? Or it has stifled the latter for, for that's the norm in, in, in U S history. And it doesn't grapple with the fact that calls for racial and social justice will be inherently destabilizing to a system and order that is built on traditional hierarchies of race, gender, and religion, that they are indeed polarizing, right, as criticism of those who have traditionally been in power, but as such, from a small d democratic perspective, are necessary, right? If if you want to overcome the status quo, if you say the status quo is not sufficient, then, well, you know, there's stability and unity have never gotten the, the country to anywhere beyond whatever was the status quo at, at any point. I mean, that is, that's the thing, right? And that's, this is where, again, like to me, this is very much a historical or history, U.S. history is kind of the best. It's basically, I mean, I know, I know you didn't write a history paper, um, but it's U.S. history is basically the best argument that you have on your side there to me, right? Because what drives me nuts about the polarization discourse, it, it casts the quote-unquote consensus of the post-war era which, by the way, never existed. If, if I mean, if and anything, was premised on racial repression. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Right. Um, but it was it it mythologizes that era as one of unity and order, and and then tells sort of the story of American history since then as one of decline. Right. So so there's just a hefty dose of nostalgia there. Oh, if we only could go back to these this wonderful era of like pre 1970s or whatever. Um, bipartisan and, and unity and whatever. But consensus has usually been based on a cross-partisan agreement to leave this, a discriminatory order intact and deny marginalized groups equal representation and civil rights. I mean, that's that's the thing. And it's it's not a coincidence that the era of polarization starts when one of the two major party, parties decides, I think we're going to break with that sort of white patriarchal elite consensus and we're going to actually like do civil rights and voting rights that's when the whole polarization thing starts and that's not a coincidence right the in many ways polarization is the price us society has had to pay for real progress towards multiracial pluralism and so again i'm not even saying there's nothing problematic about the upheaval that comes with that right that's not even what we're saying it's just i wish everyone who's just about all about unity and stability would just think for a second about what those periods of relative unity and stability in U.S. history, what they have, what they have looked like, and what they were built on, and then look. If you then want to make the case, yep, that's what I want to go back to. Okay, tell me who you really are, but at least grapple with this. Yeah, I, that's such a good way of putting it. And I think so. Two thoughts. One is that, to me, at its basic definition, I've always understood politics to be about power. So for a field of political science to study polarization and have zero analysis of power of the polls is sort of shocking, right? Um, and I think, you know, again, then this normative idea of social cohesion being prioritized over social justice, I think that probably a lot of people who, you know, both journalists and, and political actors and political scientists, people studying this would say, no, no, like, well, I, I do, I believe in democracy. Like, I think we, you know, should have social justice and trans people should have rights and, and black people should be able to vote, right? Like, yes, I agree with those things. 
Well, you know, I don't know if you've read, you have younger, you have younger children, right, Thomas, the, the yes. book, We're Going on a Bear Hunt. Oh, of course I've read that. I mean, okay. many, many, so t- like, many, many times. Right. So it's like, we're going on a bear hunt. Here's a deep, dark forest. We can't go over it. We can't go under <laughs> it. We're going to have to go through it. <laughs> yes. And that's sort of what it feels like with this upheaval, right? And the polarization yeah. research is saying, we have to go around it somehow. We can't go around it. I mean, I'm going to... 100% play this part of the of the episode to um to, to my older son the little one will not understand but the older one will like, oh my god you were talking about this he will probably be like papa why did you not have me on then um, <laughs> I love that but <laughs> yeah no we we if 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 anyone's out there who has um kids under the age of I don't know 5 or so it's it's great it's it's fun um, no, I, I, yeah, I 100% agree. This is to me, and I just, I want to, I want to be clear. I'm um, just, just to make sure that no one is sitting there thinking, oh, the historian is criticizing the political scientists. No, no, no. This is, this is a problem amongst historians as well, right? This is not like one discipline. I mean, if, if you look at the, the, the polarization framework has sort of been the closest thing we've had to a historical master narrative over the past 10 years or so also. Um, and so these problems have been very much present in sort of the recent historical literature as well. Not everywhere, of course, but but there's quite a few examples where you read it and you think, seriously, is this is this how we're going to be telling the, the, the story of the most recent past now, pretending that there was this golden age pre-polarization and everything everything since has been sort of a, a decline um so it's not at all i'm not saying historians have it all figured out and 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 you lot haven't that's that's not my argument yeah i mean i think what one way to think about this is to say you know let's take take race and gender and all these super powerful identities out of it let's think of it from even from an economic position right imagine that like corporations don't like it when their workers unionize, right? The union provides more economic justice for the workers. And when the workers decide to unionize, this is as if the corporation at that moment said, those workers are so polarized, yeah. right? That's the equivalent of, of like what's what we're sort of doing is we're saying like we're, we're trying to get more progress and more justice for certain people. And then we're basically calling those people who are asking for justice equally polarized as the people who are trying to prevent them from getting more justice. And that doesn't make any sense when you put it, when you think of it from that, from that power-based perspective. So maybe as the last point, because we're already, we've been going on for a while, but, but I, I want to um, return to one point that um, both of you have, have already brought up, but it's so important that I really want to sort of, sort of dive a little deeper there. So if, if we are right, and of course we are, um, that there are so many problems with polarization as a sort of master narrative for our time. If the empirical case is at best shaky, and if it is built on at least problematic normative assumptions, why is it still so attractive to so many people? Right? Because I mean, look, it's not like we're the only ones criticizing this. I'm not going to sit here and say, "Oh, look, we we the three of us we have figured it out. No one else." There's, 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 it's coming, right? There's, there's more critique of this coming, but still, the broader public political discourse is still all in on polarization. So, what makes the polarization narrative so attractive, so useful to so many sort of different groups of people? Maybe we can talk about that a little more. 
Um, it's not in the paper, but a couple of times when we presented this as we were working on it, we never did it as a full gotcha, but we were gonna, which is where we're going to have these two statements on one slide and both use this language of polarization, right? And talking about it. Uh, and one is from the political sectarianism in America piece, right? That, that Lily and others wrote talking about, you know, um, how political sect sectarianism cripples a nation's ability to confront challenges and I, these identity-based struggles. But the other one is from a bill from the Alabama state legislature that's trying to ban critical race theory. Using the same sorts of language around sectarianism and identity exclusion. I don't think those two sort of broader pieces, obviously, are making the same argument, but it is one of the reasons that it's been taken up so much, not just by social scientists and journalists, but by those on the right, uh, is because it is hard to argue against. It's a very easy thing, and it is a naturally appealing thing, I think, especially for white people in this country, to say, we should just be able to get along, right? And so the idea that the problem is that we can't get along, and that's it, and it's not about civil rights and human rights and justice, like that's a lot easier to talk about. That's a lot easier of a thing to sort of make sense of, even if it's a thing you're concerned about, right? And you're not sort of weaponizing it, like I think some folks on the right absolutely are, because it suggests that the solutions are easy, right? It suggests the solution is if we could just get along better and talk to one another and all make a little bit of compromise then we wouldn't be in this crisis. But that's not true. Yeah. I would actually say, so So Shannon's referring to this piece in science that I was one of 16 authors on um, <laughs> called, called Political Sectarianism. I think it was called Political Sectarianism. Um, yeah. And it honestly, one of the more difficult parts of writing that was that we were trying to say, like, how do you make this better? And none of the none of the recommendations will work because they're all saying both sides need to come together and talk to each other. But like, there's only one side that's like sitting and wringing our hands, trying to figure out what the other side is thinking and trying to be sensitive to their needs and trying to go to the diner and talk to them. And like Tucker Carlson isn't sitting around thinking like, I wonder how I can really appeal to Democrats, right? Like, I wonder what they're really thinking. I wonder if I could just come up with a way for them to like me, then maybe everything would be fine. Like the people on the right aren't doing that. They aren't thinking this through. They aren't, they're not approaching this from a position of let's come back together and be, and be kind to each other. They're, they're approaching it from a position of power of how do I get the most power possible? And so when one side of the of the equation is is trying to is trying to find compromise and and unity and the other side is just trying to completely dominate and get exactly what they want which is which is increasingly contrary to the to the requirements of a democracy it's it, it puts us in a position where we can't get through the forest <laughs> we can't get through the forest if we don't admit that we have to go through the forest and and instead try to understand the forest and why is it so dark? And like, maybe we could get the forest to come to us. <laughs> you know, like none of this, like it's not going to work. It's not going to work that way. And all of the, and one thing that I do try to do is think about like, what are theories of intergroup conflict resolution that we can apply to, to something mm -hmm. like this? And and the the problem with those theories is that they they really require everyone to work on them sort of together, right? Like you have to have everyone willing to come to the table for that to work. And and you can't be chasing after 
you know, an intransigent child who's just trying to, who's trying to deny what's really happening. And there's simply no economic or political incentive for figures on the right to engage in that at all. Oh, none. Yeah. And in fact, every incentive points them in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And so even, you know, the solutions that I think uh, come from a lot of this sort of intergroup conflict and, and interpersonal communication, you know, I think the idea that, you know, we're poking fun at it, but the idea that if people could speak to one another, things would be better, like on a small scale, yes, right? Like, yes, like you could be, you know, better in your community or your workplace, right? Like maybe those really hard conversations could promote more social cohesions at at this very low level. And that might, you know, move us further away from polarization and maybe even more towards democracy by understanding the human and civil rights of people who are different than you. But there's no incentive for elites to engage in that at all. And so in some ways, I think it's a fool's errand to try and convince the public that it's their problem to solve. When all of the conversations in the world across the sort of aisle at a diner table are never going to fix the political structures that incentivize us staying this polarized. So what what is so interesting to me about this question of, if this is such a flawed approach, why is it still so attractive? Is that what we have been describing as the problem of the polarization approach from an analytical perspective, that it doesn't capture what's actually going on, the radicalization of the right, that it obscures rather than illuminates what's actually going on. When the question is, why is it so attractive, then that becomes the feature and not the bug of the, the polarization narrative, right? Be, that's <laughs> the, the analytical inadequacy is not a bug, it's the feature, because it's precisely the fact that it obscures rather than illuminates the actual problem, what makes it attractive politically. And again, you see this, I mean, Shannon, you mentioned this, it, mainstream journalists, for instance, are drawn to this polarization framework because it allows them to say that things are bad, which they, they want to say, that they're not like, you know, they don't want to pretend nothing, there's no problems. They want to say things are bad, but they also want to remain nonpartisan and neutral or whatever they they call that. And so since that is defined as keeping equidistance from either side, right, they, they just just say polarization and boom. Same in academia. I mean, we're the same, right? Um, I'm not saying we're, we're, we're any better than that. Um, and so I think the, the polarization concept is useful if you want to lament major problems in American politics, but you either don't see or more often, you simply can't bring yourself to address the fact that the major threat to American democracy is a radicalizing right. And in this way, right, the concept even weirdly provides a rhetoric of reproachment, since it does not require agreement as to what is actually ailing America. It only only agreement on polarization is to the detriment of all, right? And then if if you if you stop it there, we, we can all again that is. That's the one thing Sunday morning shows where everyone just starts nodding their head. So weirdly, right, it is sort of, it reestablishes the long lost consensus, elite consensus around the idea of polarization, right? Is is there nothing that uh, Americans st- can still agree on? Yes, there is. Polarization is the problem. That is sort of, it's it's a in a weird way, right? It's a sort of a, uh, a consensus discourse established, reestablished through the back door. Um, which I think, I really think that makes it very attractive to people, right? Because clearly American elites since the 60s have been very uncomfortable with the the country 
you know, this this sort of not, not falling apart, that is, again, a, a normative way of putting it, but with sort of, th- there's been a search for consensus, for a new consensus that that could replace this sort of golden age of consensus. And polarization never breeds contention. It makes everybody not in approval. Um, that's the genius of the polarization narrative, right? It provides the language for a lament that blames nobody or everybody, but but no one specifically. But it also it satisfies the longing for unity, also fuels that longing in turn by offering this sort of consensual interpretation. It is it is weirdly sort of consensus reestablished for the back door. And I every time I see all people all sitting there, yep, polarization. That's that's what I'm thinking. It's 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 those consensus moments that some some people just are longing for that so much. And that's why you can you can make the empirical case all you want. They're not gonna move away from this. And if you want more evidence that it's a you know it's a feature, not a bug, uh, Google uh, Charles Koch Foundation and polarization research. Yes, they have. I been was just going to bring that up. <laughs> pouring, pouring millions of dollars into polarization research because it allows us to have these conversations that don't blame the party that, for instance, is trying to reduce taxes on billionaires. And at the same time that the Koch Foundation is spending millions of dollars funding polarization research that would decry sort of the lack of civil discourse and the sort of, you know, space between the parties and people in this country, they are also spending millions of dollars to fund extreme right Republican causes like the network of organizations that's advancing anti-trans bills in state houses across the country. Um, but if we're doing, if we're fighting about trans rights and we're researching polarization, it's harder to think about that the billionaires aren't paying any taxes. Mm-hmm. Which honestly, like, just to add to that, the you know the 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 billionaires not paying their taxes is like across the entire country. Everybody thinks the billionaires should pay their taxes, right? Like it's an extremely, like you, we have unified, relatively unified agreement on that. Just like we have eighty percent approval of like background checks for gun purchases, right? Like people tend to agree, as you were saying earlier in the conversation, abortion, uh, gun control, taxes on billionaires. These are all things that there's pretty large consensus on. And and as Shannon was saying, the reason that the Republican Party focuses so much on this sort of status threat, identity grievance politics is that they that's the way to get votes. They don't campaign on popular things. They get their people to vote because they rile them up on things that make them feel angry and insecure. And that is the that is the entire choice, which is why there's no incentive for them to to stop doing that. Conservatives mm-hmm. latching onto the polarization narrative is just the best. It's just I mean, that's just the best example, right? They they're doing it because they're counting on the obscuring rather than illuminating features of the polarization approach. And mm-hmm. it allows them to present their actions and positions as legitimate and in line with the mainstream. You buy so if you you buy mainstream credibility when you say, like when Ben Shapiro will will decry pol- which is ridiculous, of course, this whole thing is that's I mean, that's his job, right? To to polarize, right? Create um, conflict. Yeah. Yes. But but then yeah. he will say, Oh, like polarization is a problem, and that—that that is just that buys you mainstream credibility. It's also when, like Mitch McConnell, every every now and then he will say polarization is the big problem. Yep, and everyone's like, oh yeah, Mitch McConnell gets it. Um, That's—I mean—that is, if anything, right? That should really give us more reason to be skeptical of all things polarization. The fact that these people are latching onto this—I mean, the, does anybody even still remember this? It was so long ago. 
in the wake of the assault on Paul Pelosi in the fall of 2022, Republicans immediately shifted, tried to shift the narrative away from the threat of far-right violence to both sides' extremism. Because it's just much better to be lamenting polarization, right? A problem than to be identified as the source of the problem. So you just shift, you just shift the dialogue that way. And they they know again, like the right is just in so many ways, just so much clearer about the political conflict and how to manipulate the way we talk about it. But that should really give us pause about all things polarization, I think. All right, any last words on all things polarization? Or are we happy with what we said so far? I like ending on the Coke stuff. Yeah, Yeah. me too. Good, awesome. Um, Then then we'll end it there. We've also been going for quite some time. We, We obviously probably, I mean, we could go on and on about this and we probably are because again, it is central to everything we do in our work. But Shannon, you have already given us a lot of your time to tell people what is the best way to find you to follow you to follow your work oh wow this is like a complicated question over the last 24 (laughs) hours i am now on the new social media app i am on blue sky but i am also still on twitter and i am on the internet more broadly if you google me you will find me and you will find a Scottish soccer player. <laughs> That's not me. I'm the other Shannon McGregor. That is, I'm, I'm glad you um, clarified that. For <laughs> <laughs> wow, they had a Scottish soccer player on to talk polarization. Um, no, we did not. It was the other Shannon McGregor. All right, awesome. Sometimes I hope she gets my Google News alerts too. Uh, <laughs> I bet she does. Um, I mean, you know. Maybe maybe she's very proud of what you're doing and 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 of your work. All right. Um, I think again, that's that's our show for today. Um, as with all of these topics, to be continued. Um, that's not going anywhere, sadly. A few housekeeping notes before we go. If you haven't yet, please subscribe um to the podcast on the podcast player of your choice. If you want to support us, if you want to support the podcast, if you think this, the podcast deserves an audience. The best way to do that is to leave us a rating or a review. Again, I I keep harping on this because it is the best thing um, you can do if, if you think we deserve it. Um, all right. If you have any feedback, please email us at isthisdemocracypod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Connor Lynch, who is making all this good stuff happen every week. Almost every week. Not every week. Almost every week. Thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Thanks once again to Shannon McGregor. This was this was awesome. It was great fun. It was probably more fun than it should be, concerning uh, considering what the topic was. But <laughs> anyway, um, who says we can't have fun talking about these depressing, depressing topics? We will be back next week. Until then, bye bye.